morning, church. You can have a seat. Welcome into everybody as our whole church joins us now. Cactus Venue Chapel, Northridge. It is great to have all of you with us this morning as we gather together for our time in the Word. Uh, we are kind of here for our last week of our Summer on the Mount series. And so what we're going to do is very fittingly, we're going to move to the end of Jesus' incredible sermon where he stood up on a mountain and started to preach. Uh, he did such a good job that uh, we've been talking about it for 2,000 years. Most of you don't remember what I said last week. So this is kind of a, an incredible thing. I want to start uh, this week because Jesus is going to kind of move us in and, and hone in on one last example. He does such a good job as a preacher where he continues to kind of walk through and, and say something profound and, and like life-changing and then gives us an, it's like this. And so this is his final example before he kind of ends this teaching time. There are two verses that come after this, but they basically say Jesus was awesome and had crazy authority and blew everybody away. We've been celebrating that for 2,000 years, so we're not going to go into a lot of depth on that. But we are going to talk about verses 24 through 27 uh, in chapter 7. But I want to start with a story, and it's a story from when I used to sell cars. And so a lot of people think it's really funny that, you know, their pastor is, uh, you know, was a used car salesman at one point. So enjoy that for a moment. But uh, I used to sell Toyotas. So I told, uh, I sold new Toyotas and I sold used cars. And so uh, I was, you know, I had a lot of fun doing it. But um, when you're selling Toyotas, you really tend to hone in. Every manufacturer's kind of got a thing. And Toyotas has always been and still is to some point reliability. Like the cars just run forever. Uh, I have one myself. It's got 165,000 miles on it. And despite like a couple little things falling apart, the old girl's still just cooking along. So when you're selling Toyotas, it's kind of funny because things that are generally revered to not be great things about cars kind of become selling points. Like nobody wants a car with a lot of miles on it. But I remember while I was selling at this dealership in Tempe, they took a car in on trade and all of a sudden it like showed up right in front, like next to the front door of the dealership. And the car was like a, a Camry. It was maroon. I still remember it. And in bright, like those giant yellow neon, like used car letters that we're all so familiar with, it said 320,000 miles. And then next to it had the car's blue book value, which was about four grand. So this car had literally driven more than to the moon and, and had like still maintained this value of four grand. So because I was a cheesy car guy, I would come in and be like, folks, you know, check this out. You guys want this one? And they're like, well, no, it's got 320,000 miles on it. And I'd say something stupid like, that's exactly right. And the one you buy today could be on its way to 320,000 miles. Let's go on in and talk about that. <laughs> How useless. Yeah, I know. How cheesy is that? It's terrible. So, uh, so what happened was uh, something happened with engines in, in the Toyotas. They had a maintenance issue, which was very rare uh, for them to have kind of what was considered for a time to be a manufacturer's maintenance issue. And it was called engine sludge the engines were turning the oil in the cars into sludge. And some of you may remember this kind of late, late 80s or through the 90s. And so Toyota did the right thing. They brought those vehicles in and they started analyzing what was going on because engines aren't supposed to do that. So they started looking at the model years and they were kind of within a, a range, but that wasn't really it. But the one thing all the vehicles had in common was they were all between 30 and 50,000 miles. So they started going, what's going on in these cars, 30 to 50,000 miles? And they found one detail that every vehicle that was having the engine sludge issue had in common. And that one detail was this. Between 30 to 50,000 miles when the vehicles were brought in to be analyzed, they all had the factory oil still in the car. Now, for those of you that have a tough time connecting dots quickly, 
I'm gonna let you know that by the time a vehicle gets to three to like 30 to 50,000 miles, it should have had at least one good oil change, <laughs> if not 10. And so the reality is that, the, you know, they ask these people, they're like, have you changed the oil in this car? And they're like, no. And they were like, any reason? They're like, well, it's a Toyota. I thought, you know, you just put gas in them and they pretty much run. And you're like, no, you're gonna need to do a little more than that. You see, the reality, and this is kind of the point that Jesus makes today, if you take two cars, even if they're really reliable, and you put them next to each other, and in this car over here, you change the oil regularly. Every three to 5,000 miles, you get the oil changed, do the things that are necessary. And in this one over here, you just go, yeah, you know what? I'm gonna just do whatever I wanna do, and I'm not gonna, it's recommended, but I'm gonna do it my own way. At 5,000, 10,000, 15, even from what we're hearing, 30 to 50,000 miles, those cars are gonna look exactly the same on the exterior. But at some point, this car that didn't get what it needed from a maintenance standpoint is gonna lock up. That engine is gonna turn into a solid because it hasn't been taken care of. And that's the deal. There's a right way and a wrong way to take care of cars. And Jesus makes that same point. He looks at us today and he says, listen, there's a right way and a wrong way to go about your life based on the things I've said. And he gives us two great examples of what that looks like. But it is his emphasis in his final words of this prolific teaching time where he stood up on a mountain and told us how to live our lives in a beautiful and caring way. So before I read our passage today, let me pray for us. So Jesus, we just come today and we really do. We, we give this entire teaching this summer, this series to you. We've talked about heart change. We've talked about what it means to get away from our behaviors only and to get into some of the deeper foundational things about what it means to follow you. Jesus, today we really invite you in to do a work, to really complete a work that you started 2,000 years ago when you spoke these words and to bring them into practice functionally into our lives as you teach us to hear, to do, to be, and to be prepared for the life that is coming. We love you. We say these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so these are the last four verses, chapter seven of the Sermon on the Mount, the Gospel of Matthew. So let's start in verse 24. Jesus concludes with this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his, rock, his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Jesus is really laying out a process for us in this passage and I want us to hone in on it today because it's what we're gonna outline our entire sermon with. This process is he is asking us to hear He's asking us to do something with what we've heard. And we're gonna really focus on this today because we've spent the summer talking about heart change, not just behavior change. So what I don't wanna do is Kevin and I have worked tirelessly in planning this series to go, behavior change is not enough. We gotta go to the problem under the problem. And I don't wanna preach a sermon today that sends us all right back out into doing only and doing the wrong thing. So we're gonna really focus in on that do. But Jesus says, if you hear and then you do the right thing, you will be something. And that's a good thing because life is coming. So the first thing when Jesus says to hear, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine. Listen, we got a lot of stuff around here on a regular basis that you can listen to. You can step in and you can start listening to a Sunday sermon. And I've done it before. You come in and you listen and it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. What's the question you ask as soon as you're done? If the first question you ask when you're, here, when you're done hearing a sermon is, where are we going for lunch? It may not have penetrated deep enough, okay? 
You got another deal. You come back in and you go, you know what? I listened to a Sunday sermon and now I'm back for my midweek Bible study and I listened and that was good, but where are we going for coffee? We kind of keep having this experience where we're listening, but what Jesus is describing here is something different. He's describing a hearing, something where those words come in and it's more than just a gathered knowledge for the sake of gathered knowledge, right? We all sit back and we've got people who have kind of heads full of knowledge, G.I. Joe said at one point, right, knowing is half the battle. I think that fraction's a little high. We have to be willing to actively hear something, meaning I hear it and I take it in. I begin a process of consideration for my life. I start to think and consider what are impediments to me applying that truth. Before I even do something with it, I have to care about it enough to consider it, to maybe wrestle with it and to go, listen, I, I've got I've to make that real for me. The next thing that Jesus asks us to kind of consider is not just hearing something, but we have to be willing to do something with what Jesus is talking about. We have to be willing to sit back and to do the right thing. And, and we're gonna dive into this and like I said, really hone in because if we do the wrong thing, we will slide right back into what we are all so famous for, which is the shortcut of behavior change without really getting to the heart that's producing the behaviors. Jesus tells us, he says, listen, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, not just considers, that's not even enough, not lightly listens, not just considers, but moves into a place of doing them. It's a great passage in the book of James. It says this, James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You know what the deception that James is talking about there? We've all seen these people. Some of us, we've been these people at different times. It's that person in your life who's got a head full of biblical knowledge. They got all the right answers, but their life's a mess. They'll sit down at times and they'll come to you and you kind of start to look at them and you go, um, are you aware this is going on kind of in your life? You get brave, you have that brave moment, kind of press in, are you aware this is going on? And as soon as you start to apply a biblical truth, what do they got? They're using the Bible as a machine gun to back you off. They got a verse two that says, leave me alone, I got this. My wisdom's working just fine. I don't need you messing around in my life trying to hold me accountable to being more like Christ. That's a little inconvenient for me. You see, they're hearing, they have a head full of knowledge, but it isn't transacting into an action. The spoiler alert here is they're not just fixing their behavior. You see, we can't just fix our behavior. We have to submit and surrender our hearts to Christ for an overhaul. We have to fix the engine that's producing the bad exhaust, the heart producing the bad behavior. We can't just seek this world. We have to seek the king and his kingdom. Because if we aren't willing to admit that our way isn't working, it is impossible for us to surrender to him and to make him our foundation, which is what Christ is telling us to do today. Now that's all real great flowery language that might make its way onto Facebook in some sort of a blurb, but here's the deal. What do you practically do? Like Rustin, enough's enough, that's great. Seek him first, we've heard that for a couple weeks. What do I practically do? Let's talk about that. Let's use an example that all of us can probably connect to in some way, shape, or form. Let's talk about a job. Let's say you go to your job and your job includes some presentation or you gotta do something or you gotta kinda step up and perform in some way. Let's use that presentation idea. You got this presentation coming up, it's a big deal. 
And in that presentation, you sit back and you, you work on it and you get your notes all together and you got this outline and you put together a PowerPoint presentation and it comes down to the point where you've worked and worked tirelessly to get to a place where it's ready. The night before you go to sleep and what are you? You are good and nervous about how this is gonna go. And the next morning, you're supposed to wake up at like 6.30, but what happens? 4 a.m., 3.59, you are wide awake and you are a ball of stress and anxiety. And you're sitting there, so what do you do? Well, let me get those notes out. You go and you grab your bag and you pull out your notes and you got your outline, you got your handouts and you start tirelessly go over, going over them, checking every period, every comma, every bullet point, is everything formatted? And you go to that PowerPoint presentation, you're like, all right, let's make sure. Love this slide, love that slide. I love that transition, it sort of dissolves. That's really gonna wow them, I love that. And then you start thinking about the people in the room. Well, this person really likes this, so I'm gonna do this. And that person really wants to see this part of the company go there. So I'm gonna make sure I really stress that point. And what are you doing and what are you accomplishing? Nothing. You're spinning your wheels and you know it while you're doing it. We've all done that. This isn't helping me, it's just spinning me up. The problem in that moment is this. What we are seeking in that moment when we are just tirelessly stressing and stressing and stressing is we are saying this, I am seeking after the world. My job is my first priority. I'm stressed about it and it's the most important thing in my life. And right now, Jesus, if you'd leave me alone, I could focus on what's most important. You see, the problem, what we need to do in our lives when we hear Jesus and we hear the Sermon on the Mount, the thing we need to do is stop focusing on the world, stop seeking. Last week we talked about asking, we talked about seeking, we talked about knocking. We need to stop asking, seeking, and knocking on the things of the world as our first priority and come back and go, you know what, Jesus, I've done everything I can do over here. I need to back my way out of this being my first priority. I need to shift over and I need to focus on you as my first priority in my life. Because the reality is, I've done everything I can do over here. I would be so much better off spending the next four hours of my life with you. Because when I do that, and I spend my time with you, both receiving your love and giving you mine, I turn my affections to you. You know what I realize? You are the most important thing in my life. You are what I want to seek first. And the calm that you're providing me makes me remember that this is a secondary earthly thing, not to be sought first, but to be sought second behind you. And all of a sudden you realize, you know what? I'm actually in far better shape for my presentation because I went back to my foundational number one, Jesus, my Lord and Savior. What about our marriages? Marriages are hard, aren't they? I'm not just saying that so that you have an awkward moment with your spouse next to you. They're just hard, right? You can do marriage really well and it's still difficult. But at times, I'll have people, they show up in my office. One of the spouses has kind of gone off the rails. So this is, this is the two types of people who show up in my office in regards to marriage. Typically, it's the spouse that's not the predominant problem, and they show up to go, what do I do? Or the spouse that is the predominant problem did something so stupid they got sent to my office, like the principal, okay? And they show up, and they're like, man, I made a huge mistake. I don't know what to do, and she sent me here. Okay, good deal. So I get that one too. And here's the problem, and I just wanna be honest, okay? A lot of times, and I, I'm just, this is not exhaustively true, but most of the time, it's a woman showing up saying my husband's off the grid. And I just wanna challenge all of us as men, the challenges in a lot of our marriages is that as men, we're not willing to act like Christ. We're not willing to put our bride first like Christ did his. And that's typically a big, big problem. 
So I have these women that come in. It's not exhaustively true. Women go off the grid too. You're not exempt from that. But these women will come in and I don't disciple women, okay? I'll meet with a woman one time and kind of hear her story and give her some resources. And then I redirect her to incredibly capable women that we have on staff who can help care for them long-term, okay? And that's just the way I do ministry. And so they'll come in and I'll say, yeah, I'll meet with you today and we'll kind of talk a little bit. And she'll start to outline a little bit of what's going on in her life. Hey, he's off the grid. I don't know what to do. He's in a super broken place. He's pretty disinterested in God. He won't come to church. He sends me and the kids. I'm like, yep, this is chapters one, two, and three of this story. I hear it all the time. And she'll sit there and they'll go, what do I do, pastor? What does this look like? And so I'll say, well, here's what I'm gonna recommend that you do. And this is a really hard conversation to have, but I'll sit there and I'll say, all I can do is tell you what my wife did when I was off the rails, when I was off the grid. Turn him completely over to the Lord and then come back and make Christ your first priority. And she goes, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, I am all that's holding this guy together, okay? If I let go completely, I don't know what he'll do. I think I'll get hurt even more. And the really, really hard thing to say in that moment is you might. You see, unless you completely give him over to the Lord, you're never gonna have peace regardless of what he does. Your peace is connected to him, not to Christ right now. And there has to be a place where you come back and you go, Jesus, he's all yours. And here's what I would say, guys, if you're listening online, you're in one of our venues, you're in this room. If your wife completely turns you over to the Lord and says, okay, Jesus, he's all yours. I'm done trying to fix him. Duck. (laughs) Just duck. Mine did that with me. I'm telling you, you can land on your knees one of two ways, either because you went to them or God broke your legs. But I'm telling you, it ain't a lot of fun. You see, what happens in that exchange is that woman now disconnects, and I know this sounds insane, okay? But just stick with me, church. She now disconnects her first priority from being her husband and her marriage. And she comes back to a place where she goes, Jesus is my number one priority. Because even though my world is shaking over here, he seems to be not moving. My earthly circumstances are shaking. Jesus is not. This foundation seems to be solid. And all of a sudden she starts to get filled up over here, starts to get her heart filled over here. And he starts to get dealt with by the Lord because that's the only thing that can change his heart anyway. You see, there's this reality that no matter what's going on, and here's the deal, God's for marriages, okay? So it's not like he's going great, we can just do without this one. He does what he can do and either this guy's gonna cooperate or he's not. Okay, but all of a sudden you go either one way or the other, my dear, you're gonna need Jesus to be your foundation. I had a really powerful example of this a couple of weeks ago when I preached on anxiety. I was sitting there and my family was actually getting ready to leave on a trip. So I was kind of wrapping up some of those end of service meetings and I met with one gal and I could kind of see out of the corner of my eye, there was, there was a gal sitting right here, right in the front of the stage. And I, I kind of looked over and one of the prayer team could have met with her, but uh, there was something that the Lord kind of did to just say, hey, I need you to do one more. So I kind of turned and I came over and I sat down and she, she said, listen, I, I got all the way out to my car, but I stopped and I came back. I just needed to talk to somebody. And I was who she ended up talking to. She started to share with me a process that she had been in. She was working through a bunch of things in her life and she had connected with a higher power. It's fam- familiar language for me. I was very comfortable having a higher power conversation based on my background. And so we kind of got to a point in the conversation where I looked at her and I said, listen, we're in church and I'm very comfortable with a higher power concept, but can I ask you a tough question? She said, yeah, go ahead. I said, where do you stand with Jesus Christ right now? Like with Jesus, like what does that look like? I'll never forget her response. I'm gonna read it to you. She said, well, my mother was killed by a deacon in our church when I was little. 
My father became an atheist, and I grew up in a survival mentality. It was isolation and pain that was what I lived with. I used to get triggered by people in church because my association was that of hypocrites and dangerous people who did bad things like murder and then were forgiven by a faulty religion that made it okay that my mother was murdered. I said, okay. I looked at her and what I realized in that moment is there was absolutely no point in trying to convince her that church people were good. That's a fruitless battle. I just simply looked at her and I just apologized. I said, I'm so sorry for what the church has done. I hope that you can continue to work through a process that helps you kind of care for some of that pain. Can you tell me a little bit more about your experience? She kind of talked a little more and she described how her work outside of the church had brought her to a place where she no longer lived on the fuel of fear. Fear was a motivator for her for so many years, but she could not now figure out, now that fear through this work outside the church had been removed as a motivator, she didn't have anything to go on. She didn't know what was going on next or where her life was being moved to. And I looked at her and I said, listen, you can run your life on fear. You've done that before. But the problem is fear is jet fuel. It is great for getting you out of the way of a semi if you need to. But if you try and run your life on that stuff, fear of failure, fear of being exposed, fear of being abandoned, you try and run your life on that, it will take you apart. It is too potent to live on every day. And she said, you wouldn't believe what's been going on. That's so true. She said, I I've started to have all these medical issues. My, my body's falling apart. I don't know what to do next. And I said, well, let me describe to you a story because I used to live on fear as well. Let me describe you a little bit of what I try to do now, a new reality that has kicked in for me over the last 10 years of my life. I said, all of us have giftings. God has given us different gifts, different things to serve the kingdom. But even more than that, as we serve the kingdom, there's a sense of dad giving a gift to a child. So what I recognized is that my heavenly father loved me very dearly. And when he gave a gift to me, if he is, like we talked about last week, a great dad, the best dad, then the best dads don't just give a gift to their kids so they'll go away and leave them alone. The best dads want to enjoy gifts with their children. I said, my giftings are shepherding. It's just a place that God has gifted me and I love being able to go in and encourage people there. The other way that I encourage people is speaking, either one-on-one -on -one or sometimes in big groups, like you just heard me. I said, I just want to share this with you because this is what it looks like for me to fuel my life today. The last thing that I pray before I walk on stage, and it's true, even moments ago before I walked up here, the last thing that I pray before I walk on stage is, hey God, dad, let's go have fun. You see, he's a great dad. So he's gifted all of us. And the reality was that when I shared this with this woman, she looked at me and her entire expression changed. A new reality had been opened up for her, not by me, but by the Holy Spirit, because she could have heard that and gone, okay, cool. But she looked at me and she goes, that, I don't have that. I don't know what to run my life on. I, I, I can't even like, connect to anything more than a higher power concept. And I said, well, is a higher power concept close enough? Does that feel relational enough? And she just kind of worked her way through the process where she went, no. And I said, yeah, my submission to you today is that you need a better fuel. You need something better than fear. You need a fuel that in my opinion and in my life comes from a relationship with the heavenly father. Would you like to start one today? She said, I would. I prayed right there. She accepted Christ. 
The report that we got back this week wasn't that her life was perfect. There were actually a great deal of challenges that opened up in the next week because the enemy was upset, started pressing in on her life. But you know what she had in all of these emails? Joy. She couldn't believe this new fuel and what it was doing in her life, the way that she was moving through it. She's connected now with one of the women on staff. They're meeting tomorrow. She gets to sit down and connect into the family of church. Something that was so triggering for her before, she couldn't even talk about it. But she started showing up to a crazy church. She got moved by something God did in her heart and she came forward and started a relationship with Jesus. A name she couldn't even say, but she was so desperate and so broken from running into all the walls of life, trying this, people-pleasing, Fear, fear fuel, all this different stuff. And she finally goes, I can't do it anymore. And instead of running into the broad road of destruction, she hits that little crack in the wall that's called the narrow road. She starts living out a new fuel. You see, she heard, she did, and then all of a sudden she found herself in a bee. See, Jesus tells us everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Psalm 3730 says this, it says the mouths of the righteous utter wisdom and their tongues speak what is just. See in the Bible over and over again, righteousness and wisdom are connected. What did Jesus tell us in verse 33? But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And then he's telling us today, listen, everything I've said in chapters five, chapter six, chapter seven, all these things, he's saying, if you do these things of mine, what did he tell us? The whole sermon really comes down to that verse where he says, seek first the kingdom. You see, if you seek his righteousness, all of a sudden we start to have a new experience. When I'm seeking him and I'm having actual heart change, the behavior starts to take care of itself. I am capable of being a new spouse for my spouse. I'm a different husband, why? Because Jesus is changing my heart. He's changing the engine so the exhaust looks different. The stuff coming out of the engine now is, you know what? She's having a rough day and I got some patience for that because it looks hard. My heart is soft, so if she's having a rough day, I got time for that. I start to see my kids different. I start to see them as, oh, you know what? They're still pretty young and I'm gonna hold them accountable to the things that they need to do, but I'm gonna start casting vision for who they could be rather than continuously condemning them for who they are. Hey, you know what? That's not who you are. Christ has made you to be more than this broken place that you are right now. Let's start walking that way instead of sitting here. You start to see the world around you through a kingdom lens because his righteousness is producing wisdom in you. That's a game-changing revelation. Verse 25 is wonderful, and this is really a great point for this sermon. He says, and then, after we have heard, after we are heard, after we have done, after we are being, he says, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Here's what this verse doesn't say. Once you are in a place where you have heard, where you have done, and you are now being wise, it doesn't say, and there was no rain, and there were no floods, and the winds were kind of a cool breeze, and that was awesome. Nobody beat on the house, and nothing fell because it had been founded on the rock. You see, this verse doesn't say that after you've done like a wise man would do, 
After you've put Jesus in your life and he is what you stand on, you live in a utopian bubble for the rest of your time on earth because that's not the promise of Christianity. That's not the promise of Jesus. As a matter of fact, it's a polar opposite promise. What this verse says is that once you've done like the wise man would do, you will be in a good position to survive storms. And storms are coming, church. Storms are coming. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest things about this passage is the storm's the same whether you built on the rock or the sand. It's the exact same description Jesus gives us. Jesus' thesis in this message, this sermon, is the same as it always is. Regardless of where you build or what you're going through or what your storm is in life, my kingdom will always be a better place for you. There is no version of this story where you are better off without me than with me. That's his deal. People ask all the time, this is the hardest question you'll get as a pastor. Pastor, explain to me why God would allow this to happen. It's the toughest question you get as a pastor. And I don't have a perfect answer, gang, but I'm gonna give you my answer. I'll look at people and I, got this, I get this question all the time. And people are basically going, how is God all powerful and this terrible thing happened to me? And what I'll have to do is I'll have to sit there and explain. Like, listen, this is how I understand a good God through the lens of my life, the bad experiences, the injustices I've had that I'm still unraveling today. I said, what I imagine is I imagine this channel, this concrete channel, okay? And it's really long. And it's got all these different obstacles and hurdles in it. And some of them are perilous. Some of them will cause death if done incorrectly. And at the beginning, when I was born, I started into this channel. And the channel is filled with brokenness, like, like wounded, terrible things from a fallen world. And I can sit back and I can look at God and go, why am I having to experience all this stuff? And you know what his answer would be? I actually didn't create all those hurdles. You see, the, the life that I created had me and you in perfect relationship had me and you living in this constant state of connectedness, but sin entered the world, and oh, by the way, I didn't enter it. You guys did. Sin entered the world, and the world is living in a constant state of decay, of fallenness, and you are gonna experience that fallenness over and over again, but the great news about the God of the Bible is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit didn't go, you know what, we created it perfect, and they screwed it up, so they're on their own. The great news about the God of the Bible is that he steps in and does the unthinkable. He comes in and goes, hey, Rustin, um, if you want, I'd like to walk this channel with you. You see, I already know all of the hurdles and all of the things that are gonna happen. Uh, I know there's some stuff out there that if you do it the wrong way, buddy, it'll kill you. And the reality is there's a bunch of storms. I understand them and I can prepare them for you really well. As a matter of fact, if you do what I've asked you to do because you've heard what I've said, you will be wise and you will wake up. Here's the thing, what's the wise man's deal? All of a sudden this storm happens. He doesn't say, you're never gonna have to repaint. You're never gonna have to change boards out. He goes, you're gonna have to remodel that house a little bit, but in the morning you'll still have a house. The foolish man is not so lucky. He comes in and he says, Rustin, I'd like to walk this channel with you. Even though I didn't create the pitfalls in it, I want to do it with you. That's what the Sermon on the Mount's all about, is if you do what I've asked, if you seek me first, if you put me in your life first, the rest comes in, all these things will be added to you that you need. They'll be in their appropriate priority. And then guess what? Me and you can live in a relationship that works. It's not a perfect life. It's a perfect savior. Well, you can do it the other way. You sit back today and you go, I don't know, that sounds kind of dumb. Well, here's your other option. Verse 26 and seven. 
And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. You wanna hear my favorite part of this passage? These two builders, they had the same information. They both knew the exact same thing. Listen to it. Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. Verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. They both had the same blueprint. Jesus said the same thing to both of them. He's literally saying, imagine with me right now, someone who hears the same message and one of them stands up from this sermon near a mountain and goes, that rocked my world. That is a game changer for me. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna make the guy who preached it my number one priority. That guy, that guy's amazing. He is now my foundation. You know what the other guy stood up and said? What's for lunch? That was all right. Kind of a five. I'm ready to move on. What's for lunch? One guy rocked, game change. Another guy, good stuff, probably don't care. I'm gonna move on. But they both had the exact same information. They heard the same words. What changes everything is what you do next. What do you do with the offer that Jesus lays out in your life? He tells us the do here is someone sits back and does not. Look at Proverbs 1.7. It says this, Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, what the fool does is the fool sits back and says this, I don't like what you have to say about my life. Why? This is why fools despise instruction and wisdom. Because it challenges my own knowledge. It challenges my way. It tells me that I have to do something that sounds hard. You wanna hear the reality? Wide is the road to destruction. Narrow is that righteous path. You ever tried to dig into a rock before? That's rough going. That's tough. What Jesus is saying is, listen, it's not easy, but if you build on the rock as the foundation, that narrow road that's hard to find, that's impossible to find as a human on your own, you will need Jesus' help to walk that road. It's rocky. It's difficult to put a foundation in rock. You gotta dig and you gotta do work, but guess what? You wanna put a foundation in sand? This stuff moves everywhere. This is easy. Just move it out of the way, stick the poles in. But guess what? If you put your foundation in the sand, as easy as it might be to build, it's just like those two cars. They're both clipping along. House on the rock, house on the sand, they're looking great on a sunny day. But when the rains come and the floodwaters are there and the winds blow, those two houses don't look the same the next day, do they? See, what Jesus is saying is fools don't wanna listen. Fools wanna do it their way. Fools sit back and hear a God-given blueprint of seek me first and say, you know what? This stuff's easier to find. I think I'd rather ask, I'd rather seek, I'd rather knock on worldly doors and get worldly answers because this just seems really, really difficult. And so what I want is I wanna do life my way. And then what happens? Winds and rains and floods come and they wash us away because our foundation wasn't on a rock. It was on exactly what we were told wouldn't work, the world, the sandy foundation of the world. Here's the point, really, this is kind of where we start to bring this thing to a close. If you seek after worldly things in this life and those things are the sole focus of your pursuits, 
then do not be shocked when you feel like you are dying inside when you lose worldly things because circumstantially they will get washed away. But if you seek after Jesus' kingdom and his righteousness first, and the floodwaters come crashing in, the worldly floodwaters come crashing in, it will be the end of those worldly things, but it will not be the end of you. You will survive to morning and you will still have a house if you seek first the kingdom of God. Because this is the picture. The, the world's kingdom is always shaking. As soon as circumstances start to get weird, that stuff gets washed away, doesn't it? But all of a sudden you look over and you go, you know what, there's a different picture here. Jesus isn't moving at all. This thing over here is rock solid. Even though my circumstances are insane, Jesus isn't moving. But this worldly kingdom, these things, they're getting washed away every time my circumstances get weird. I've gotta do something different. I've gotta change the way that I'm going about my life. I want you to see a story of a woman named Raquel. She went about bumping into the walls of life for years and years, went through a lot of pain, at the end of the day, she makes a statement that I want to cover. She talks about when God brought her out of a slimy pit and he put her on a solid rock. Would you turn your attention to the screens? Well, I was born in Phoenix uh, in 1937. My parents were wonderful parents. I was very fortunate to live in a Christian family. We uh, attended uh, church uh, every Sunday, but it was a church that was very um, legalistic. Uh, and it, uh, it preached the God of many rules. And uh, this was okay with me because I thought that if I could follow rules, which I did very well, then I could make life uh, understandable, manageable, and most of all, predictable. I married the man of my dreams. Uh, I had the son and the daughter that I was praying for. Everything went well for a while until I hit my 40th year. There was discord in my marriage, anxiety about my children. Because, you see, I had started the pursuit of perfection. I descended into this very deep depression. And I thought, oh, I cannot be depressed. I'm a Christian. Finally, I got on my knees and I said, God, I give up. I said, I can't do it anymore. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm angry at me. I'm angry at you for allowing all of this to happen to me. And that's when I realized that I had uh, locked myself in a prison of lies. Lots of time passed, probably two, three years, when I really was obviously depressed. And uh, one day when I was really, really low, I decided that uh, the, the world would actually be a lot better without me. I said, okay, I do have a bunch of pills around here somewhere. So that's what I proceeded to do, is take all the pills that I could think of that might wipe me off. Next thing I know, my husband has my feet, my son has my 
arms and they're dragging me out of the house. And then I was absolutely astonished when I woke up in the back seat behind the wire of a cop car. And then when I found out that it's where I was going, it ended up being a county mental hospital. And I was in a locked ward for two weeks where I learned a lot about myself. Mixing with others from all walks of life, I'll never forget. They're just, I'm just like them. They're just like me. We're all the same. And finally a doctor came and talked to me and she kept bugging me and bugging me and bugging me. I was sitting there and I finally said, what is it you want? I really lost my temper. And she stepped back and she says, well, finally, we're making some progress. I realized that I had been focusing on the horizontal which is doing it myself. And I had totally lost the vertical position of trusting God and what he had already done. What an eye-opener that was. I was in a wonderful church again. I went to the church, um, to their counseling center, and they have a very good counseling center. And I told them what I was up against, and they were praying very powerfully. I just felt something really, really going on. I suddenly was felt like the chains had broken off. And then I felt such joy. All of a sudden, it was joy, joy, joy. I was cured. I was lifted out of that slimy pit and I was given a new song to sing. When I was in uh, Tucson, I attended a class on evangelism, and the Holy Spirit kept niggling at me. I said, okay, God, where's my ministry? You know, who are the people I'm supposed to minister to? He said, well, who are the people that you're most involved with around here? And I said, well, there are a whole lot of Jewish people here. I'm friends with them. Well, where do you think your ministry should be? I've been a happy person and content for 42 years. I'm really grateful. See, I had to change religion to a relationship, and that's a totally different thing. I cried out to the Lord. He turned and heard my cry, and he lifted me from the slimy pit, and he put my feet on a rock. It was a firm place to stand, and he put a new song in my mouth, a praise to God. And I have never been the same since. You know, uh, we didn't plan that for this week. That got filmed weeks ago. We didn't know which sermon it was gonna go with. And I just couldn't, I mean, you couldn't ask for a better segue into the main point, which is that like, listen, 
I was getting my shop wrecked over and over and over again. And whether it's, you know, we, we talked a couple of weeks ago about anxiety and mental illness, and I kind of delineated between kind of some different conditions within that. But the reality is like her, her experience here, which she's sharing with us, is that what God did had a profound impact on my life. I was lifted from a slimy pit and I was placed on a firm footing. I was lifted onto a rock. Like you couldn't, she quoted the scripture we're gonna walk through today. I was on this solid rock. You see, she surrendered and found herself on the rock solid foundation of Jesus Christ. Her life hasn't been perfect since then. It's not utopian. There's not a lack of wind or a lack of floodwaters. She's in a better place to weather them. She talked about in the midst of kind of her most insane time, she was in a prison full of lies. Like this woman has, what a road. Like if you looked at that gal, you wouldn't sit back and go, oh yeah, she's probably led a pretty crazy life, probably been institutionalized, probably woke up in a cop car. That's not the gal that I think wakes up in cop cars, all right? The reality is God moved and because she finally sat back and went, you know what? This thing's not shaking, everything over here is. My attention has to be shifted. That is my hope for every one of us that calls Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. My hope is that we continue to do the hard work of building on that rocky foundation to make him our number one priority. My hope is that after we go through the painful process, my hope is that after listening to this summer series, we all go through the process of doing something with what we've learned about the Christian life and not just hearing it. My hope is that we all reevaluate what we're doing with our Christian lives and we start going after heart change with Jesus rather than behavior change for Jesus. My hope is that all of us would fall more in love with Christ every year of our lives. We would continue to grow with him whether the times are good or the times are bad because the kingdom of God will be unshaken by the ways of the world. That is the point of the Sermon on the Mount. We're gonna get a chance to go to the communion table today, which I always love because we get to take what we all hope is kind of a new reality. Hopefully God has inspired you in some way, shape, or form today through song or through his word to sit back and to consider your life in a new way. Maybe there's some things you should be hearing. Maybe there's some things you should be doing to have a different result, that you would be different after your heart has been transformed you see, in communion, we go and we recognize that things go to the cross to die. There might be some places in this world, and I'm gonna let our campus pastors open this up a little more in just a moment, but there might be some things in the world that need to die, that you need to take to the cross today and spend some time considering those things with Jesus during our time of communion. So as we turn it over to each of our campuses to have their own time of communion and worship, let me pray for us. So Lord, our prayer, as we really take what we've gathered through this incredible sermon of yours that we've been talking about for thousands of years, is we come and we sort of say, God, all the way from your first syllables about being poor in spirit and what it means to be so desperately dependent on you, all the way to the end where you reiterate that same point with the priority of you in our lives through hearing, through doing, through being, and then the recognition that life will not be easy after that, but that we will have you to walk through the difficult. Through that whole realization, Lord, our prayer is just that you would help this turn, not just into something that we listen to before we make our way to lunch, but a genuine wrestling, a consideration that says what's in the way of me and Jesus, of him being my first priority, and that, Lord, you would take our hearts, you would take them apart, 
and you would reassemble them on the rock solid foundation of you. Lord, we love you. The fact that you care so much about us, you didn't abandon us down here in our sin, but you chose to walk the channels of our lives, the difficult places that you wanna be with. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.